Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. You've read their articles, you followed them on Twitter, but do you know the real story behind the founding, creation, and the ethos of the block? Well, after listening to today's episode, you will. I had Mike Dudas on the show, who is the founder and CEO of The Block Crypto, and what a wild story he has. He's worked in payments at Disney, at Braintree, Venmo, Google, since before Bitcoin was even a thing, since before Bitcoin was even announced. He has a deep understanding of how finance and how payments work. And we talked about a lot of different topics, like why The Block really wants to bring out inconvenient truths and talk about uncomfortable conversations. And that gets them a lot of flack. You've seen that. We talk about Libra and how that has such an effect. And I asked some questions that make me uncomfortable sometimes. Like, is the world ready for Bitcoin? Is humanity ready for that big of a jump going from what we have now to what we will see in the future? talked about who their readers are and how people are trying to whitewash history and does the block purposely create drama to get their message across the answer will surprise you give some love to the sponsors and i'll talk to you guys right in a minute if you're buying selling or holding crypto you are a low-hanging fruit for the irs and for many years i've been waiting for a good solution where i can be proactive in my taxes but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their crypto tax health check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. You're a super loyal podcast listener and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. 
They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today on the show, we have Mike Dudas, the founder and CEO of The Block. Not The Block like the blockchain, but The Block. And you know what I'm talking about. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. I appreciate it. You guys got a lot of stuff going on. You, you're in Davos this week. Your team is all over the place. Um, and I was having a talk with someone the other day, actually. And um, I said to him, what do you what do you look for? What are you looking for in in crypto media? Like, what are you looking for? Um, what in your in your eyes? What is the the, the purpose of having um, inter industry or intra industry media? So you have like you know we we joked about farming. So the farming industry has their own media. You know we have our own meat, and we have the block. And one of the one of the uh, the best answer I've ever gotten for this question is. Um, to check our industry, to check the industry, not if you're not rely, you can't rely on governments to keep your industry in check. Bad actors at bay. It, it, it it's about the media, and because the media is generally not afraid to do it. So congratulations, and and it was really wonderful. Not wonderful, but um, it was good to see how you guys talked about a story a year or two ago, and then that kind of happened. Um, you know, the guy, the scammer, got arrested. Um, was that like your intention for that? to happen? So it not for him to get yeah. arrested, but was it your intention to kind of start checking the industry? Yeah. So th there's a couple things. There's really, I think two main purposes, uh, for, you know, why we started the block and have gone in the direction that we've gone in. So, uh, we basically practice research driven journalism. Uh, so the media portion of our business, it's research driven journalism, meaning we have a team of researchers who have, you know, a skills, skill sets across a, a multitude of disciplines that traditional news organizations don't, right? So traditional new, news organizations are primarily, you know, trained journalists. Uh, and we have the luxury and the benefit of having you know, far more than that. We have exceptional journalists who also know economics, um, you know, philosophy, a number of other disciplines. Uh, and then a research team to work with and support them. Uh, what that gives us the ability to do is, is two things. One, 
to your point, we can go pretty deep on really specific and interesting stories. Uh, in some cases, it is to investigate. So blockchain terminal is one that you mentioned. And it was a story that was so shocking to us that we just felt Frank Shaparo uh, on our team felt he just had to go deep there. And you know, $30 million was at stake and had been lost. Uh, it was a story that nobody else was uh, going to tell because a lot of, you know, if, if you think of the folks in this ecosystem who are, uh, you know, alleged bad actors, they're some pretty scary people. Uh, so, you know, and they're litigious and, uh, and yes, you know, so they're quick to litigate and they're quick to threaten. And, uh, and so, you know, Frank in that particular case was brave. Uh, and again, he was backed up and bolstered by our research team. You know, Larry, uh, is really, Larry Cermak on our team who leads research for us is, is exceptionally wise and could help Frank go really deep there. So we were able to go deep on that story. Uh, and we've done that in other cases and, and not all of them are investigations of potential crimes. Um, but some are, you know, we, we have deep connections, uh, and, and sourcing at specific companies or protocols and projects. And, you know, we basically like to both, uh, uh analyze news and, and report on the applications. And frankly, I think the biggest thing that we do intra industry, as you said, is, uh, we often reveal inconvenient truths. Whereas I think too much media is sort of a replay of press PR and company speak. That's a very good uh, statement to make. And I like, I like those two terms. So like I, I'm always writing. And, and so now intra industry media is, is something that we should talk about more, maybe in a few minutes, but, um, you know, what you said, um, rings true and and I'm guilty of it too you know inconvenient truths so in there's a lot of situations where I mean even with with that Boaz Manor um situation there was a lot of people um you know like on forums and Twitter and Reddit like it was all speculating like who is what is going on who is this but it wasn't the first time and it's not going to be the last time so traditionally our intra intra industry media Right. Because I don't like saying crypto media. I feel like these terms have gotten so, you know, when when you assign terms to things, you attach labels to them. So let's, you know, even saying something like in, like crypto media versus intra industry media. Um, you're right. It's very unwilling to to talk about the inconvenient truth. So I'm going to write that down here for a second to bring up in a little bit. But I want to go back. Um, so I do this weird thing with my show. Right. When I so I do a lot of research and the show's highly produced. And like every morning at 7 a.m., I have a friend that I meet. I only have three friends. Well, like one's on the fence. So I have like two and a half friends. One of them I meet. I'm just joking. One of them I meet for coffee a lot of a lot of the days a week. And um, he's completely not in crypto. He's like um, an older gentleman, as people who live in Florida are. And he um, is a good friend of mine. He's owned a lot of weird businesses. Like he he owned he owned the most successful um, um, court reporting business. Like who gets into the court reporting business, right? Um, Fascinating. Yeah. yeah no, like by all, the way, is this the one who's on the fence? No, he's like he's good. He's he's solid. But but so what I do is with him. He's like so so who are you talking to today? Because he's a fan of the show, but he's not a crypto person at all. He just knows it because we're friends. So I, I don't tell him the name of the person on purpose. And what I do is I just kind of go through a little bit of the background about you and the history. And so we talked about how you know you were at the, um you were you know in the mobile commerce at Google. You worked at, at Braintree and Venmo for a while, and you helped introduce you know and payments. And you your your last 
business button was so successful. I mean, going back years, you you were involved in Disney and I mean, we can go over your whole LinkedIn here. It's like a whole page. It's crazy. I do want to ask you a question about when you worked at Kaplan, just because I'm, I'm curious. Um, and I do want a refund from my Kaplan. I'm, I'm just joking. Don't um, we all? I know. Right. But you know what the first thing he said when I went over your whole history, he goes, why would he start the block? Like what, yeah. why would he do that? Like what, what, you know, what in God's name would, would make him do that? And I said, you know, I don't know the answer and I'm going to, it's going to be the first question I ask, but, um, I feel like you can ask this question to like everyone who's in crypto. Why in God's yeah, name would you do it? <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, you know, I asked you, Charlie, and, and you would say, I, I I'm stuck said, in it now. Right. You're like, it's the thing I did right yeah. out of school, you know, when I was 20 or when, you know, it was, uh, uh, anyway, so, so the answer to that is I have been deeply interested in, uh, cryptocurrency since, 2013, uh, you know, when I first discovered it, I was working at Braintree, uh, which uh, competed with Stripe and still competes with Stripe. It's owned by PayPal now. Uh, and we owned Venmo. And we were exploring uh, Uber and Airbnb were our customers. We were exploring Bitcoin payment acceptance um, for Uber and Airbnb and some of our other really large mobile customers. Uh, that didn't end up taking off. But in the course of conversations, met the Coinbase team, uh, was really impressed with what they were doing at that point. And, and you know, being somebody who had worked at Google Wallet and, and Venmo, I took a particular interest in financial services that are consumer friendly. And you know, Coinbase was one of the few, maybe the only you know, US-based consumer friendly uh, way to purchase Bitcoin at that point. Uh, so it got me interested. I purchased Bitcoin, uh, and what I liked about it, you know, was Coinbase thinks that they, they, Brian thinks he founded the whole Bitcoin industry. But yeah, I mean, no, like they're writing a book. Definitely evolved over the years. It's been really interesting, right? Seven years later, yeah. to see how things have shaken out, how people have changed, how uh, their perception of you know what's important and what cryptocurrency is has changed. And we could talk a lot about that. In fact, we took money from Coinbase as an investor uh, and then subsequently you know, gave it back about a year later, just because we didn't feel comfortable having money from you know, a, 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 an operating business in the space as an independent you know, media research and information organization. Not because we don't like them. Um, I, you know, I still have respect for what they've built. But to answer your question, so, so that's the prehistory. Hmm. I, I then spent a lot of time and I spent you know, nearly a decade in traditional fintech and the outcomes for these companies in their best case. And you saw it recently with Plaid, which is you know, a remarkable company, but sold for $5 billion plus to Visa. And you know, I just was looking at you know, what's the future of money and what's the future of finance and you know, you know, selling into the legacy you know, big bank and captive financial institution ecosystem just didn't excite me. And Bitcoin offered, uh, and you know, subsequently, you know, other cryptocurrencies are offering you know, variations and, and different applications of, you know, we can call call it decentralized uh, or you know, distributed money and finance. So that's what captivated me. Um, and so in 2018, uh, very very beginning of the year. I decided I want to enter this space full time and, and work on it for you know, quite a long time. That you know, I think the next couple of decades uh, in money are going to be fascinating. That's what personally interests me the most. There are obviously other applications of your know, blockchain technology and digital assets, and we cover those. Um, but what drew me in was money. Okay, the the to just quickly close this out. The the thing I realized is 
uh, I want to be in this space. I want to be a part of it. I want to help it grow. And I'm not an engineer myself. And I felt at the time that all the different projects out there were things that I didn't want to jump into or peg myself to or join. Um, and having been a founder, uh, and the big problem that I had, and typically, you know, you start a business to solve a problem that you have, uh, and you find that a lot of the most successful businesses are started that way. Let me ask you a question. And, you know, so you were talking about meeting rooms and, and, and you know, Braintree and Venmo. Um, and we talked about inconvenient truths. Um, and so the question I have for you, this is like a real question. Do you think that crypto is too big of a jump for the world? And what I mean by that is, you know, we're used to, if you look at the evolution of money and payments, you know, we had banks and we had whatever the banking payment systems were. And then now the next level is, um, Venmo and, um, cat the cash app and Apple pay and, 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 you know, like people are, it's a fairly easy transition. Like I see people using Apple pay all the time. Um, when I, I, my painter accepts Venmo, like it, you know, Zelle is being used a lot now. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, Bitcoin and crypto is growing by leaps and bounds. But I guess the question is, um, the same question as I said, do you think that it's like too big of a jump? Do you think, you know, mankind or, or you know, humans, at least in the US, I guess you can answer this like from a US perspective and then from a global perspective. So I, yeah, I think it's less of a geographic, uh, the answer is less of a geographic one and more of a generational one. Uh, you know, my, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So, uh, when the switch to you know, digital money happened and by digital money, I mean, you know, not from like my bank account going offline to online, but you know, you mentioned Venmo and cash app. Uh, so the notion of like sending money to my friend, uh, back and forth, that was driven by a group of people who hadn't really used money, uh, you know, with others previously, right? It was kind of teenagers growing into folks in their twenties. And, you know, now it's folks, I'm 40 and, and I'm using Venmo regularly and cash app and others. Uh, I think we're going to see the same thing, uh, with cryptocurrencies, you in terms of having them used as money, uh, either as money for you know as a store of value, as well as you know money that we send from one person to another. Uh, so I think that the the first sort of wave of significant scaled adoption beyond speculation, which is you know what happened in 2017, early 2018, uh, is what. So as the big fintech products, this generation of fintech products like Cash App, uh, which has 40 million plus users, uh, you see eToro, uh, I believe Revolut, you know, a bunch of these other significantly large Robinhood fintech companies put Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, Ripple and other large cryptocurrencies alongside equities. Uh, they, um, the folks who use those applications increasingly, you know, I hear this from others. I hear this from the folks that I work with, uh, view those things, you know, not that dissimilarly. Right. And again, there is some level of speculation, but it's the same way that you would be speculating that, you know, Square or Tesla or Apple stock is you know, going to increase in value. Um, you know, the reason for that increase in value will be different, right? Your thesis with Bitcoin might be, okay, it's a but story. That's, that's it. I guess, like the speculation of the price. What about like the adoption of, of people using it and just being comfortable, yeah. like 
so so that's a different question right but but i think you know the point with money is that there is you know there's multiple ways that the money you know has value and can be used and so to your point so money as um you know a medium of exchange that is going to happen and is happening only at the edges, right? I mean, cryptocurrency, uh, at least you know, public cryptocurrency, does not have uh, you know significant advantage or any advantage. Frankly, it has disadvantage um, to fiat money um, and you know the existing payments and, and banking infrastructure for you know, the vast majority of the world. Uh, we could talk about the different folks who it does have value for. Um, and those are folks who live in countries with you know, rampant inflation, um, you know, folks who perhaps are operating in industries that are viewed as gray, um, you know, whether that be drugs, whether that be, you know, sex workers, uh, there's a host of different, uh, categories, uh, uh, countries with capital controls that folks want to get around. So today, you know, those, those, any of those individual use cases, I would say, aren't, you know, sort of breakout killer apps in of themselves, but in the aggregate, they definitely add up. That being said, you know, they, they don't add up to a you know, billion people using cryptocurrency today. But certainly, if the speculative use case and store of value um, and this narrative around Bitcoin and this, you know, per perhaps DeFi narrative around Ethereum continue to gain momentum, and, and this is not going to happen in a year or two years, we're talking a decade to multiple decades. Um, that's how long it's taken for Venmo to grow. Um, you know, Cash App is already, I think, six years in, right? These things don't happen overnight. Uh, over the next couple decades, yes, I think it's very reasonable, particularly as I said, uh, you know, mentioned earlier with a generational change in terms of how people think about what money is uh, for cryptocurrency, public cryptocurrencies to be viable. Uh, the, the, you know, hard thing to predict, and, and I actually think it's going to benefit Bitcoin and you know, public cryptocurrencies is uh, central bank digital currencies, which thanks to Libra have exploded at a much more rapid pace uh, than anybody ever could have forecast a year ago. Uh, and, you know, when you're staring down the barrel of surveillance money uh, issued by, you know, an authoritarian government, well, hell, you realize pretty darn quickly that you might want to have an out from that and, and an you know, an option to not participate and have all of your transactions operate within that system. I think that's going to accelerate you've, the um, utility of cryptocurrency. You've inadvertently answered the question better than you answered the question. Because going back to the question of, are humans ready for, for, for Bitcoin? And because, you know, Bitcoin is not just, uh, you know, crypto in general, it's not just like a Venmo or whatever, or cash app. It's also this new type of money. But what you said was super interesting. You said that central bank coins are accelerating, you know, thanks to Libra are accelerating at a rapid rate. But what's, what I think you, you said, and, and I agree with you, if this is what you said that it's actually now with central bank coins, it's going to increase literacy on people being open to new types of money. So you could even make the case that central bank coins are actually doing like God's work for us. Because now, not only do we, you know, for the past 10 years, we've had to convince people, don't just, you know, Bitcoin is not just a new form of money, which is like super hard to convince people or explain to people. I'm still learning myself, but um, it's also this other, you know, like a payment system. But now yeah. with, you know, the, the growth or the advent of the central bank coins, the first argument of a of a digital money 
that's not kept in one place or whatever. It's a distributed database. But in terms of the central bank coins, it's not really. I think that uh, that learning curve will be done um, by like governments and central banks and companies. And then um, people will wake up and realize that they want a better version of their digital currency. And that is Bitcoin. Yeah, I, that's a, and not everybody will care and they won't, you know, care for specific use cases. Like, I, I don't think, for example, that, you know, let's just say a digital dollar does exist at some point this decade. Yeah, you know, who knows if it will or won't. Uh, but, you know, I'll probably, I'll definitely want to receive, for example, my salary uh, in digital dollars versus in Bitcoin. Uh, that's it. And I think, you know, the vast majority of people will. That being said, I think there's going to be a significant set of transactions, uh, again, depending on how, on how this would be implemented. Certainly, if it's implemented anywhere close uh, to the way that DCEP in China uh, sounds like it's going to be implemented, uh, folks will want to, quote unquote, opt out. So they'll want to swap their digital dollars for, uh, you know, let's just say Bitcoin. They're going to want to, you know, basically do anything they can, you know, coin join and other uh, methods that will be introduced over the next five to 10 years to, you know, sort of anonymize uh, that money and then anonymize the individual transactions and, and use them accordingly. So I think people, to your to your point, uh, will get educated on what digital money is and how it's different than just, again, peer-to-peer -peer payments today in Venmo or Cash App. That it's, it's money with monetary properties uh, and you know, can be used as more than just a medium of exchange for payments. Um, they're going to understand the trade-offs of digital money in terms of surveillance. And, uh, and then they're going to have the ability to choose you know, what services to use for what transactions. And look, governments aren't going to make this easy. Uh, um, and you can see that, right? You can see the surveillance companies ramping up, the Chainalysis, you know, Chainalysis, Elliptic, and, and others, um, who you know I think do provide some valuable services in terms of helping to avoid money laundering and, and certain criminal use cases. At the same time, you know they do give uh, tools to folks that you know could be abused from a privacy perspective. I mean, I tweeted about I tweeted about that this morning that you have to have a middle of the road, but you you've been working in in payments and you've led teams, most people don't know this, for, for over 10 years and at, at some of the largest financial service companies in the world. Has the con before Bitcoin, did the did the concept of like non-government money ever come up? I mean I know it did on like the cypherpunk mailing list, but like to real you know to the real world, not on small mailing lists, did this ever come up? Did anyone ever think about it? Did 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 e was eGold ever part of conversations, you know, when you were at Braintree? And then when Bitcoin finally did launch and, you know, in those early years when you were talking about like accepting it or whatever, 2013, 2012, what were the kind of the conversations in the room? What were people saying? Yeah. So the, the way they came up was, so I think the, th the, the way that, uh, I guess digital or non-state money was talked about was more in the sense of, you know, a Chuck E. Cheese token or, uh, you know, Facebook, Facebook bucks, you know, the things that the, the money that you can basically spend like in their games or in a closed ecosystem, you know, nothing about actual, you know, monetary policy and, and money that's backed by something, but really just kind of like stored value, uh, that you would use, uh, within a closed loop ecosystem. Okay. The, 
the way that we talked at Braintree and, and really the way that most merchants, for example, who are large and accept uh, cryptocurrency payments today online, think about crypto even today is as a uh, not basically something that they want to accept, keep on their balance sheet and and take you know, any sort of money or price risk on. Uh, but it's just, hey, if this is more convenient for some subset of my customer, sure, you know, I'll accept uh, Bitcoin payments. So the big financial institutions today, when it comes to payments, uh, and certainly back then, 10 years ago, you know, weren't really thinking uh about and I'm speaking to public cryptocurrencies again, sure. Bitcoin. Uh, you know, thinking of them as really critical to to their business models or their strategies. Um, I think Square has changed that in terms of you know being very Bitcoin focused. And Jack saying, I think it's going to be you know the money of the internet. And he has you know a really great team around him that is advising him and and has him believing that. So they've you know both it's genuine, but it's also tremendous sure. positioning and marketing for them that differentiates them from other large you know, financial technology companies. Uh, what I think you wouldn't have had 10 years ago or eight years ago or six years ago when I was working at these large companies is what Facebook did, right? So yes, things changed. And and so over the last three years, I, I think it probably had something to do with the big price run up in 2017 and all the awareness, but something changed. And, and really, you know, David Marcus uh, is is the, the big sort of corporate change agent. Okay. He is the one and you know, there's a team around him, right? Morgan Beller, Kevin Wheel and others, but, but it takes somebody, I mean, this guy was the president of PayPal. I mean, he's the real deal. Um, and he's an incredible executive as an entrepreneur before he was brilliant a brilliant person PayPal. too. Yeah. Very smart. So, I mean, he's, he's one of the most you know, critical he and you know, Wences is up there and there's a lot, a lot of others, right? We don't need to name all the names, but, but anyway, in terms of uh, corporations and now governments taking uh, real digital money seriously, he was clearly in my mind, the biggest change agent because he did this within and convinced Zuckerberg of all people at a company, obviously we, we now we see in retrospect, it, it may not be the right vessel. Um, or maybe it is. I mean, honestly, I think Libra is going to be the best thing that ever happened to cryptocurrencies. Uh, and we can talk more about that, but the yeah. bottom line is what David did, uh, and his team in 2018, 2019, uh, and today, would never have happened seven, eight years ago. And that's because of, I think, not only Bitcoin gaining you know, some mainstream recognition over the last seven, eight years, being secure, getting past, you know, sort of Mt. Gox and some of the earlier troubles, but truly it was uh, seeing Ethereum as a, you know, financial issuance platform. And, and, you know, it's moved beyond that now to, you know, decentralized finance, but there's just mainstream interest. David is close to a lot of those folks in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and, you know, he brought it to, frankly, the largest uh, company basically in the world that touches two and a half, you know, yeah, approaching three billion people. Huge. Um, but what I don't understand with Libra, and so my opinion with Libra changes every single day with the wind. You know, some days I'm like you, I'm super bullish on it, besting for, for, for Bitcoin. Some days I, you know, it's the opposite. There are a few things that I still don't understand. One of them is not Libra, but what I don't what I don't understand from like a, um, you know, 
reaction point of view is for the past 10 years, the relationship between the United States government or the global, you know, global Western governments um, has largely been kind of like wait, watch, make policy clarity, kind of wait, watch policy clarity with with the odd and end Senate hearing here or there every few years or, you know, new type of license or whatever. But it's it's largely been like um, hands off. I mean, like besides for for tax law and things like that and 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 governing the, the companies in the space, uh, crypto users, crypto miners and and um, crypto acceptors and holders have largely been like. I'm not gonna say left alone, but it's it's not a difficult life to live, right? So just in the back of your head, think about that. Then Libra gets announced, and within like the first weeks, you have Senate hearings, you have fucking David Marcus in front of <laughs> the president. I, I well, not really, but you know what I mean. Like yeah. France is banning Libra, and it's not even a white paper yet. Like the reaction is basically like like Armageddon. Like 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 I don't know. Do you watch the show Messiah? Do you watch the show Messiah on Netflix? It's so like I'm about to. Okay, so, so I'm not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> no, it, it's unbelievable show, but don't watch it before bed because if you're like me and you get scared easily, you won't be able to sleep. It, unbelievable show. Okay. But the point is that they've like, so on one end, I'm like, yeah, like that's great that you have like, like, yeah, pay attention to Libra. Don't pay attention to us. That's that's awesome. But on the other hand, I, I don't understand why. Why? You know, like Libra can be shut down by the government with one document, with one law. You know, they could probably, sh you know, shut down Libra. Um, but you can't really do that with Bitcoin. It's harder. And every day that Bitcoin exists, it gets harder and harder and more expensive to shut Bitcoin. I think it, right now, like a one hour attack on Bitcoin is 800K. And you, you lose that. So, I mean, yep. by the way, a one hour attack on like Bitcoin cash is like nothing. It's like 10 grand. It's like, <laughs> it's so dumb. So it's like, why though, Mike? Like why? That's what I don't understand. Why? Uh, why the pushback? Why the attention? Why so, of the difference in pushback yeah, with Bitcoin and so, with Libra? Yeah. So uh, like, so Libra has the full backing of a company that, is basically the biggest challenge to uh, government authority, right? And and sort of this is a this is a company that literally had a direct impact on democracy in the most powerful country in the world uh, in our last election. Uh, it had an unquestionable impact in you know, Brexit. So so it's a company that governments are terrified of, and uh, and and feel that they can't control. So when you when you mix a company with that power, uh, by the way, that, you know, most users, you know, probably 2 billion plus out of the two and a half billion really don't care too much about the privacy stuff. So they love this company. They connect with their friends and they're happily doing it. Uh, so they have a bigger fan base than any country as well. Uh, gets into money, which is so, so first of all, we can't control this company. Um, and this company has impacted, you know, our actual governments, right. From a, from a sort of democracy perspective. Now they want to actually create a non-government money that would reach a population that's greater than, you know, any of our countries by multiples. Well, hell no, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up real fast and, and fight that. And by the way, it's an easy fight. Um, the media will, will chew this up and amplify it. Uh, so that happened. And, and, you know, I think the mistake, the biggest mistake that the Libra 
association and the Libra team, you know, did was to be so public and to do such a big coordinated launch versus trying to quietly slow roll this thing. Um, you know, I, I think they had no idea how fast and ferocious the pushback would be. And I think it's reflective. It's definitely reflective of a lack of self-awareness within Facebook that you see, you know, anytime there's a controversy related to things they do with data, privacy, uh, you know, advertising, misleading metrics, you name it. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? Then you need crypto tax audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me. And I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin with their recently launched educational platform. It's not only free. It's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. You know, I didn't think about that. Um, I didn't think about the concept of why they did such a big launch because it's unlike them. I mean, and now how many companies have left the the virtually uh, all of them, basically every important company and they're restarting candidly. It's probably not the worst thing for them, particularly if they are committed to this in the long run to just slow down, take some deep breaths, push it off to the Libra Association uh, and develop the Calibra wallet uh, in relative quiet. It seems like that's what's happening. Um, I think it would have been smarter. And it, look, it's easy to hi hindsight guess this. These, these are really, really smart folks who this was hard to predict. But the, the pushback, I think, gives them some breathing room uh, while regulations are developed and are being developed. You saw in Australia yesterday, they now have a framework to regulate, you know, sort of non-government currencies. Australia is a crazy nanny state, though. Yeah, we unquestionably. Don't, people don't realize like, and how I crazy. Don't, I haven't even read them, so they could be horrible guidelines. But the point is, when they do come back, you know, the Libra Association with a fully baked plan, uh, and perhaps, you know, they don't need to do all this window dressing around, you know, partners who aren't really committed. Um, you know, there's a chance that you can actually build this money uh, in a more methodical 
and and lower profile way. I don't know. I mean, that they could also give up on it and say, hey, this is how it's better, you know, somewhere without Facebook. But I do think that the distribution they have is pretty critical to getting any sort of adoption for non-state money. Do you uh, think we trust um corporate money do you think we would trust corporate money over government money and do you think that's why one of so the reasons no. the pushback you don't okay wow yeah so i don't and uh and particularly from facebook i think uh because right now people don't aren't really aware of most people like where money comes from and you know how it really does enable it grows in the, the backyard pow- the power of a government right <laughs> yeah they're like hey you know it's in my it's in my uh checking account and i spend it and yeah. the company pays me it right so but but uh, you know the fact that it's a tool for foreign policy i think we're becoming more aware of it as a as a country and as you know globally um it is as, the tool for for foreign unquestionably. policy unquestionably yeah but most people don't know that and so they that's why obviously it's such a threat um, I think as so, so that's why it's a threat, by the way, to governments and to other businesses like Facebook having a currency. Like if that if the government hadn't pushed back, every other company in the world would have pushed back who's not participating in it. Right. And said, like, hell no. Uh, like they get to issue their own money and we don't. Or, you know, Did you ever read these- um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman? Nope, but I'm putting it on the list. That book, I read it before I got involved in Bitcoin, like before Bitcoin, that book and I've read so many books since then. That book so perfectly explained how money is weaponized without any conspiracy theories. Like there are no conspiracy. This guy who wrote the book worked for U.S. Aid or the World Bank or what's the other? What's the major uh, American organization that or global, but really it's American that lends money out to foreign governments? Um, is it not the World Bank? It could be the World Bank or U.S. Aid or one of these IMF or whatever. One of these. Yeah. But the book talks about how you know those you know, pseudo quasi government organizations use lending to basically control foreign policy. Um, and then on top of that, you know, like the evolution of that is sanctions. And I mean, everything look, that- we're in an impeachment trial in the United States as we're exactly. speaking. Because of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, so that's very, that's very interesting. I want to, I want to move on really quick, not move on, but I, I had a, a burning question. You were the manager of strategy for Kaplan Higher Education. This has nothing to do with Bitcoin. I'm just curious. Yeah. What is that like? Because I, I I use Kaplan actually yes. to to help me pass the SATs. So the, <laughs> you probably yeah. worked for them then. Yeah. So I w- I worked. I spent uh, a little less than a year there, and and this was right after I went to business school, which is is a uh, is a exercise that I do not recommend to anybody who has any grounding in business. Yeah, Yeah. that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, but, but two sort of lost years of productivity and I came out with more than a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Your MBA or your, your bachelor's MBA. I can imagine you sitting through that saying like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? (laughs) And I knew within like three months and then I was like, ah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of pot committed. I've got to, I've got to do this. Yeah. Um, But you know what you should do? You should now continue through and get your PhD just so people have to call you Dr. Dudas right, on the Twitter. Right. Yeah, like that would be, I could see you being one of those people that that would be your only motivation. And then you'd graduate top of your class. Nice. Like nice. I have to find a shortcut. What's the easiest Why PhD do you want to be get? a doctor? I want to like solve all the health issues in my country. Why do you want to be a doctor? Just so people have to call me Dr. Dudas. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. And there are people who do that, right? They put an MD on their LinkedIn or yeah. doctor, Dr. Julian Hosp. 
the so the question was Kaplan, and I uh, had an interest in education policy while I was in business school, and actually was thinking about starting an education business. Uh, Instead, you know, because I was had significant debt, decided to work at Kaplan, and it was fascinating, man. So I was not in the test prep part of the business; it was in the higher education part of the business. This was before all of the scandals came out, but it took me uh, two months to figure out that these higher education companies are horrific. These for-profit higher education companies are horrific for our society. Um, so basically, you know, University of Phoenix was a big one, you know, ITT Tech. There's all these big uh, for-profit There's companies. so many now. Yeah, it's disgusting. I see the billboards all the time. Yeah, our Secretary of Education, you know, is is basically is a billionaire, right? Or hundreds of millionaire yeah. who got wealthy off, uh, off for-profit education, among other things. It's disgusting. But anyway, the, is, I the mean, whole, is student debt a problem? And, and if it is, like, what's the solution? It's a major problem. So here's what the incentives are. So the government will lend up to 90%, you know, so, so basically, you know, they'll pay for these students' education. The money goes directly to for-profit corporations. And so they have an incentive to get as many students into their programs as possible. So they market them like hell and they don't really care what program you get into. And candidly, they don't care about the outcomes, whether you get placed. Uh, they're just always trying to stay one level ahead of the accreditation or regulation process, which is you know, multiple years behind what actually happens. Um, so, you know, if you see one of these companies get nailed, it's typically five years after they did something egregious, like, you know, get a ton of folks into debt. They were char you know, charge three times what a community college would charge for a program. That program uh, is going to graduate 30 people into a local market like El Paso, Texas, that only has five job openings and the thing that these <laughs> kids are studying. You know, it's just if they graduate and most don't. Um, and the only reason they're there is because they're told it's sort of low interest free loan money and this program's exciting by a hard driving salesperson at Kaplan Higher Education or some other company. So a really horrible thing. I have a brilliant idea. I just thought of it. It could be so dumb. Um, but... What they should do, actually, it's a bad idea because I'm not a fan of more government regulations. But if they had to add a regulation, they should make a law. Uh, they like a law should be made saying that. And this is more of like a thought experiment because I don't advocate for more laws. But um, could be cool to solve two problems is for every 10 students that a for profit college has, they have to allow they have to teach for free a prison inmate a, vo yeah. a vocation. I do think that's interesting, uh, and I like it. So, uh, if you if you you know start a populist drive to to get that to get your local congressman or woman, yeah, because that, that'll that. really work. <laughs> well, I'll help you, buddy. So you you the 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 Blocks Foundation is simple. Um, you're you're striving to be the first and final word in digital assets. That's your motto. Why is Correct. the reason that's important is because um, this is not the motto of, of a lot of other uh, intra, you know, blockchain media. Um, a lot of them launch to say, we're going to actually just, you know, rewrite other articles. Um, some other ones say, we're not going to break news. Um, some other, and they all kind of do this. So you, you want to be, yeah. and you're, you're striving to be, and you have been everything. So you want to be the first and final yeah, full stack information services is is what we like to say. Like we don't think uh, it's actually getting pretty tiresome 
the number of folks in the cryptocurrency and really in the technology world, just in the broader world, who look down upon media and journalism uh, just by default now, you know, that it's like a it's like a bad profession and that you're you're, you know, basically assigned uh, negative intent by virtue of being a journalist or working in media. Um, so we view it as no, it's, it's a critical, critical, uh, part of, you know, of our democracy, of our society, of our world, that people are getting, uh, you know, information from credible sources who do deep diligence, research, um, fact checking, and, uh, you know, basically aren't out to get clicks, but are out to give high signal information. So we want to be first and you know, we don't mean the first one to get a story out or break it. What we mean is the first place that you look to because we've built up that trust and credibility over the past month, three months, six months. And so you think of us first. And when I say final, you feel comfortable that when you read our journalism, when you read our research, uh, when you look at the new data product that we'll be introducing uh, this year, that you don't feel like you need to go get a ton more context elsewhere, that we can be that one brand that delivers all the information that you need or a significant part of it within a you know very defined and discrete set and that set for us uh, vertical is is digital assets broadly but it's really cryptocurrencies public cryptocurrencies projects on top of them people companies you know and then how governments are sort of responding regulating you know the legal issues etc around this well what's happening is with me at least is that when I see an article when I see uh, you know a piece of news that come out you know, and other, and other sources, I will wait for you to write an article about it before I make, you know, before I, I even read about it or have my final like decision or I move on from the story, I'm going to wait to see what you guys have written. So it's not that you have to be the first, but now, um, I think, I think as humans, um, we're, you know, like we're evolving in that we're starting to like, I think that we're starting to like again and appreciate and, 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 and need and pay for longer form content. But the, the, the instant gratification and impulse of, I need this, I need the information now. I think it's starting to recede. Um, and Absolutely. It's, do you it's agree just with me? We're inundated. I do. Okay, I, uh, cool. I've I've cut back uh, on the number of sources that I get information from. You know, I used to read, even while running, you know, the block. Last year, I was reading uh, Coin Telegraph, and I was reading at one point, you know, CCN and a couple other sources. And honestly, it just got to be too much. And I've cut it down to us and Decrypt and CoinDesk. Um, because they do write a, a, a little bit more so that they're, you know, all journalism, the, both of those uh, organizations and all news. So I like to you know, sort of get a slightly broader picture, sure. um, but they do write a lot of price pieces and things like that now. So they're losing signal. Um, but again, I, I respect both of those organizations and think they do good work. So just within, you know, the cryptocurrency space, uh, I get enough information, probably too much from those three sources. Uh, there's really only on any given day, let's be honest, you know, three, four or five, like impactful stories that really matter and have deep implications. I didn't even think it was so, that much. I, yeah, it may not be. I mean, most days it's not. And, and frankly, it may make more sense to write three stories on the big impactful piece. So uh, an example would be whatever the UK is doing. And I don't know if it's a big deal. Um, but let's just say the UK is seriously looking at 
the uh, you know a digital currency, um, and and there's a working group. If they had actually issued a document, you know that's one where I'd love us to do a research piece on it. For example, report the news and then do an analysis, which would be like a premium journalism piece. So we you know, produce let's say three pieces of content on the one important thing that happened. You know, versus writing three articles on you know the three tokens that went up seven percent today. The dream of of every. Um at least the the dream of 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 media businesses, at least the ones that I talk to, is to have a sustainable business model long term. Yeah. Now yep. you and I know that that's extremely difficult to do. Now you and I also know that it's even harder to do without advertisers because you know advertising is is the easiest way I think to you know to sponsor stories things so like I that. So I would agree with that one hundred percent. Advertising wait, is essential. So 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 but but you've you know you talked about taking you know giving money back to Coinbase. You've made it a point to talk how your business model is. Very, you know, extremely based on, um, I'm missing the verb, the noun, but extremely based on, 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 you know, subscriptions, memberships, longer form content data. If you were to talk to the New York Times five years ago, they would think you're crazy for making this your yeah. business. Is it working? Because I want it to work. You want that to work. If all media was subscription and membership based, you would have almost, you know, you'd have almost no advertisers you know because because totally. realistically do you know like new york times and wall street journal there's always advertiser pressure i mean that's how so, the world works so yeah so what i'll say is this so we're an, we're a young company right we're 18 months old we've we you know spent the first eight months just building up the business so we've been i'm sorry the, the product and the brand so we've only been selling anything for 10 months okay uh it takes a good amount of time to you know, build up a significant membership and subscription pipeline, uh, and then to convert those folks into paying members. And we're doing a really good job of that. And I'm extremely excited. And you know, our our investors are pleased, and it's setting us up really well. Uh, we're we're in the process of raising a Series A. Um, and I think, you know, to build out our data product and, and to build on the strength that we have with our subscription product. Okay. So it's working. It will continue. So the beauty of memberships and subscriptions is they just, it's what you, you know, it's recurring revenue. So it is really high quality revenue if you have a reasonable churn rate, which to date we do. Um, but because we're a young company, uh, you also, uh, it's also critically important to have cash. So we have, you know, invested cash, of course, but revenue is is far more important, and you know, it's what will make us a business and a profitable business over time. We're not there yet, but we will be. I fundamentally believe that, and not in the too distant future. So the what we've done now, we reject you know more than half of the folks, well more than half of the folks who reach out to us. Uh, and want to advertise with us or be sponsors. So we had uh, a, 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 we had thirty sponsors uh, in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, that is not a humongous amount uh, relative to you know other businesses I've been a part of. But they you know we felt were high quality advertisers. They were committed to us in a significant way. Um, you know, it was folks like Cash App, um, you know, folks like LMAX, just really high quality businesses uh, that we believe in and we're proud uh, to partner with them. So we have taken uh, taken on sponsors and, and you know, 
they're, they don't impact our editorial in any way to obviously two separate sides of the business. But I don't view uh, advertising dollars as a negative. And I'm actually surprised at, uh, for example, some investors and many people out there who think that you know, advertising is, is going away anytime soon. It's not. You know, Facebook and, and Google, you know, the two of the largest companies in the world, are ads-driven businesses. You know, there are many different advertising models. There's a ton of, you know, the Super Bowl, you're going to see $10 million ad spots. Uh, so it's a great and complimentary piece of a business. That being said, we're not going to become a billion-dollar-plus enterprise value financial information services behemoth, what we plan to become over the next decade. Uh, as a purely ad-driven business, of course. So, whereas last year, more than 50% of our revenue was advertising and sponsorship, this year, it will drop below 50%. And that's really exciting. And if I look out, you know, five years, I would imagine advertising will be, you know, 20% or so of our business. But it's going to be a very important 20%. Those sponsors are also people who will buy and do buy our information services, uh, our research product, and the, you know, soon to come uh, data product that we'll be releasing this year. So, you know, they all work together in concert. Can you talk about some more of the data products that you guys are going to be launching? Yeah. So what we see in the market today, uh, when it comes and data can mean like a zillion things, as you know, right. We ourselves, um, our research and journalism teams, uh, Steven, uh, Zhang on our team basically has an incredible, uh, incredible list that we make public of the services that we use, um, and the, you know, the data sources that we use in our research. Um, but what we find is, so the, the free ones are fantastic, but you know, they're, they're incomplete or they're focused on very you know, specific things. Uh, and, and, you know, even some of the ones that folks, including ourselves pay for, uh, are often raw data that, that you need to kind of manipulate and, uh, put quite a bit of work into them to make them valuable. Now that's not a bad thing. It's just a small group of folks who, who really have that need, particularly in the digital asset market today. So the product that we're going to be bringing to market is one that is, uh, you know, basically a a mixture of data, context, and research. Okay, so we'll be focused on a few key areas, including companies. And you know, so to give you an example, we talked about Coinbase earlier. You know, we will have a Coinbase page. Uh, you know, this will this will be a product uh, likely with the name Explorer, the block Explorer. I like that. They may veto it, the team, but uh, we'll go with that for now. Anyway. You'll click Coin, you know, tab Coinbase into the search bar. You'll be able to look at the facts. Okay, what is Coinbase? What lines of business are they in? When were they founded? How many employees do they have? Where are they located? What's the regulatory oh. situation? Who are their competitors? So you're mixing so kind of like, like a Crunchbase, a Masari, yeah, Coin Market Cap, just kind of like mixing it and, all together. And then you get the 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 signal that others can't provide. And this is where being a full stack company matters so much. Here is the research that we've done on this company recently, right? Or that we've done on exchanges more broadly, or that we've done on regulations. So, so connecting relevant, it all together. Exactly. Connecting it all together and then giving historical context. And so it's not going to be purely automated or amateur gathered. So it's going to be assembled by professionals. So what you what we present 
will not be the entirety of the world. We're not going to cover 2000 crypto companies this year, right? But we will cover what we cover. We will cover with great depth, uh, great context, and it will be extremely valuable. And it gets to the second goal of our business, which is we've heard from a lot of people that they, so a lot of people who are in the space right now and are committed to it, right? So big companies like Fidelity, Backed, um, you know, Galaxy. And I'm not saying any one of these said this, but just we hear a lot in aggregate that they're concerned that newcomers will look at the space and not be able to get up to speed quickly enough and won't have a reliable source of information. We believe that we can play that part and we can play that role. We're doing that today with news. We're doing it with research, um, but we can organize that better and more holistically to get people up to speed more quickly. And we think that's critically important over the next year, two years, three years, as you know, we're trying to attract. And again, this is an institutional product that we're introducing. We'll continue to have you know our news and journalism product that will reach many more people. Um, but we want to reach all these audiences and allow them to get up to speed to the degree they need to really rapidly so that they don't look at crypto Twitter, Reddit, and something else and get scared and run the hell out of here. You've, you know, speaking of crypto Twitter and, and Reddit um, and inconvenient truths and convenient truths, your, your team are like, you know, I follow... I think I follow your whole team, um, maybe except for one or two of them. And yes, it's entertaining, but at the same time, it's also factual and important. Um, and so because of that, you've been accused of like creating drama. Um, but if you look at it, it's not really creating drama. It's more um, highlighting things that are dramatic that most other people don't want to highlight. What do you have to say to that? Yeah. So I'll preface my answer with saying, look, we've done some things that I'm not proud of over the course of 18 months. And I personally have. Uh, <clears throat> and I like to think that I'm moving in a better direction in terms of uh, you know, stirring up uh, drama or controversy for no reason. I would say early, early on in our history, like we're talking uh, late 2018, when we were a challenger and nobody was really aware of us. Yeah, maybe I uh, got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So again, I'm not super, super proud of some of the things and, and, you know, people don't forget. And, and so, you know, I work hard and I'm working hard day in, day out to earn back trust of some of those folks who are offended. And that is what it is. Okay. The, what I will say is if we just fast forward to today, truly today. So I feel if you look at what we've done over the past month, um, we made a very, very conscious decision to have, uh, a, world-class uh, editorial leader joined the team. Uh, so Michael McSweeney joined us from Coindesk, where he had been an integral part of the team, along with Pete Rizzo, uh, for over five years. He is you know, a no BS, no drama uh, editorial leader. And uh, so he, along with uh, Mike McCaffrey, who's our COO, and uh, Jake, who's my co-founder and CTO, you know, those are there. None of them are particularly loud on social media, and they are really pushing us, as is Stephen Pally, who's our uh, legal advisor, to uh, to to act with complete professionalism and let the words on the page, you know, what we write, uh, do the talking. That being said, a big part of our brand is you know, sharing our perspectives, which people value because we've earned trust and credibility publicly. Um, what we're 
working, and I think we've done well over the past month in particular, um, since Michael McSweeney joined as our editorial leader, is focused our comments, uh, even when critical, on facts. Okay, so an example would be yesterday. You know, Larry, our head of research. Uh, looked at some reports out there about Binance's uh, burn mm, of B and B last That was quarter. a great tweet. Yeah, that whole story was awesome. Yeah, I, I was so proud of Larry. At first, I was nervous. I actually told the team internally, "Hey, is this the right thing?" And they said, "Look, like what he said is is accurate. It's fact checked, and and it's has it's, Binance you know, responded? Has anyone responded about to about it?" <laughs> I don't know if they've like, I'm not part of our editorial team. So I don't know if they've responded to our editorial team directly in the past day. They did. I saw, you know, Tim Copeland from Decrypt mentioned that they confirmed that, you know, the burn is no longer tied directly to profit. And so, you know, that's a change and they changed their white paper. And, you know, that's the type of inconvenient truth that historically you would have had a hard time, you know, folks reporting on it, or it would have been reported on with a clickbait headline and no depth. And and so it's not the inconvenient truths it's the inconvenient conversation so let's yeah. expand that's what pisses people off is that you're that creating is, conversation and selkis ryan at masari you know does that as well and and got and, and yeah, uh, i like really ryan. exactly i i do too i'm a huge fan you could say that ryan was almost yeah. the founder of that concept of that, absolutely with, with he used to do that well before i was yep, yep. um and so yeah so what were you going to say though so we, I think he does that well. Um, I think a lot of people, so I know, and, and it really disappoints me. And, and so I'm trying to sort of close out uh, and, and mute a lot of the folks who aren't willing to have difficult, but honest conversations and, and really just, you know, people who don't like to be criticized, which candidly is a lot of the folks who have made easy money in the space, um, are in positions of power and you have done some questionable things and don't like to be, Mm. uh, called out or accountable for what they've done. Well, whether that be, Hey, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist today, but I own a bunch of shit coins and I advise a bunch and I took some for free. And by the way, I, that total value is probably worth more than my ethical holdings. There are a lot of those people out there who are screechy loud and obnoxious and and our team isn't that. And the, and so, you know, when you can't combat somebody on ethical grounds because our team discloses exactly what we own uh, and has a pretty good track record, an extremely good track record of reporting and researching factually, you just attack the people. So we Mm. get a lot of that. And a lot of the drama is not us creating and seeking drama. It's people responding because we matter, because we have credibility and people, the same people, not the screechy ones that you see on crypto Twitter, but the investors, the money people, the folks who subscribe and uh, to our business and, and the folks who talk to us in telegram privately call us the movers and shakers see this stuff and by the way the folks who are writing about know it and it freaks them out actually um it's funny that you mentioned that because i just had um pete rizzo came over and stayed at, stayed at our house for a few days um because everyone's trying to get out of the new york winter and we were just chatting and i said like when you announced that you were leaving coindesk who was the first person that called you just to like wish you well or whatever and he said mike dudas and I was like, and I was like, what? Like the person that you were like fighting on Twitter <laughs> no. with just a few months ago is the one who, and, and he said, yeah, like 
And what was really nice, what he said was like, he's like, I, he told me, he's like, I have such a respect for Mike and I could see that Mike has such a respect for me. And I, and I, it was very heartwarming for me because you see, you, you see a lot of people on crypto Twitter that are just like really mean to each other. So yeah, more- so much of that is born out of misunderstanding yes. and, and I've been as guilty of that. Like I am a emotional, you know, fire burn in person. And so look, that's good and bad. It really helps us in many cases, but yeah, historically, I don't think I was quite, I wasn't quite aware of what a cauldron the space was. Uh, if <laughs> it's I an understatement of the year, months, right. <laughs> so now that I do, uh, yeah, I, I, I moderate myself and, and sort of self-censor, uh, the degree with which I, I sort of will come at folks uh, publicly and it's, it's for the best, frankly. Uh, and I prefer to do it. I prefer to have conversations, you know, in person uh, than arguments on Twitter, the block, personal arguments, the block.com uh, Mike Dudas, the block crypto, the, the block, block crypto. crypto. Well, if you com. just type in, is it really, I, for it me, is, it's so there's auto, a, it, it just kills goes. me, man. I know it kills me. The block is like some show in the UK that's famous. Uh, and then there's another one that's like, uh, like the Chevy truck block. Like it's going to cost oh, me yeah. 2 million bucks to buy these well, things. The block and so crypto, that's not happening now. CEO, Mike Dudas. Thank you so much for coming on the show, creating uncomfortable conversations, but talking about truths and thing we need things that we need to talk about. Thank you for doing that. Keep, keep doing it. What a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. And, and you guys and have I, your own podcast, The Scoop, right? So my listeners can can check it out. Absolutely. It's it's done by uh, Frank Chaparro and it's called The Scoop. But I, I do have to say, uh, you're one of the best interviewers I've talked to in the space and, and your research is impeccable. Uh, so really, thank you. This has uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you. No, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll, and I'll definitely see you, uh, see you soon. And if not come down to Florida, you're more than welcome. I would love to. All right. Cheers, buddy. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of untold stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7am EST on untoldstories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.